The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. It's on page 846 in the Bibles under your seats. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The word of God for the people of God. Well, we are working our way through the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Um, I'm going to preach from the little scripture journal that I've got this morning. If you're newer to the church and you'd like to have one of these as we go through this series, uh, I'd love to give you one as our gift to you. Just come see me up front here after the service and I'll uh, give one to you. Um, and actually, if you're, uh, if you're just newer to the church, I'll be up here after the, the service and would love to just meet you, put a name with a face and hear a little bit about your story um, and answer questions if you have them. So um, you're welcome to come find me after the service. Uh, we're on page 846 in the Bible under your seat, or page 80 if you've got one of these little journals, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Um, you are obviously here at a worship gathering of Coram Deo Church, and I think it's easy for us to kind of fall into the shorthand of speaking of church as a place, because after all, we're here in a building. We just prayed for a church to get a building. Churches need places to gather. Uh, and so this is our shorthand, right? You came to church this morning. But we know actually biblically that the church is a people, not a place, right? When we're talking about the church, even Corndale Church, we're talking about you, right? You, we are the people of God. The church is a people, not a place. And, and this church in particular, this people that we call Corndale Church, uh, got its start a number of years ago, the summer of 2005, um, in my living room as God began to gather together a core group of people to plant a new church in the city of Omaha, and particularly a church that would connect with people who were skeptical, critical, unchurched, de-churched, the kinds of people who weren't looking for a church to go to. That's the kind of church we wanted to be and to build. And uh, that sort of process began very organically and very slowly with a, a small core team of people. And for the first four years that our church existed, um, every time we brought new people into church membership, that membership commissioning took place in my living room. And uh, eight to ten people at a time, usually, we would have Stokes chicken enchiladas. And um, as part of that sort of gathering, uh, one of the things I would do, and just as a practice for those first four years, is that when you came into membership in the church, uh, in my living room, I would wash your feet and that was just a, a way of expressing and picturing what we wanted church membership to be. Because as Americans, when we hear language like membership, we think Costco, we think 24-hour fitness or Genesis Health Club or whatever, right? And so we tend to think of membership in terms of what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? How do I get into like the elite club where I get the real benefits? And the Bible, of course, flips that idea on its head. Jesus says, hey, if you're a part of my people, what that means is you're called into serving. You're called into giving your life away for the good of other people and for the mission of the gospel. And so washing feet was a way of sort of showing visually the kind of servanthood, the kind of community that God wanted to build as, as the members of Quorum Deo Church. And so what that means is over the span of about four years, I washed hundreds of feet. And here's what I came to learn. Number one, feet are really unique. 
No two feet are exactly, well, your two feet are pretty much exactly alike, but no people's feet are exactly alike. You kind of, I just think I kind of thought, you know, a foot's a foot. It's kind of a utilitarian thing. We walk with it. We kick the dog with it. Um, but feet are very unique. They're very distinct. The other thing I learned is that foot washing to this day makes people very uncomfortable. Like I didn't say before you came over to my house, hey, by the way, tonight, after we eat dinner, I'm going to wash your feet. So we'd just be sitting around the living room and I would say, hey, so now we, we do this little ritual where I wash your feet. So go ahead and take off your socks and shoes and we're going to do that now. And people were a little uncomfortable with that. And, and maybe you understand why. Like maybe you feel like, man, I don't, you know what? My feet kind of smell funny or I don't take very good care of them. Or I, you know, I'm not sure I want people just like touching my feet. We kind of have a thing with this, Right. So, so this is in our day and age where this doesn't have any cultural significance. It's just the reality of like, yeah, you know, feet. <laughs> so imagine on top of all the sort of psychological things that we attach to that kind of a moment, imagine now piling onto that cultural and social and socioeconomic realities that would have been there in the first century. And you have a sense of kind of the moment that we're coming into in John chapter 13. Jesus washing his disciples' feet in his culture, in his day at this time. This is the task that would have been reserved for the most menial of servants. It was a task that was um, seen as sort of the place of those who were lowest in society. And of course, everybody wore sandals and walked around on dusty roads. And um, there was a lot involved in foot washing. And as, as uncomfortable as it makes us, even in the world we live in, you can imagine it had all the same sort of things attached to it in that day as well. And so we come on this scene, as I said last week, we've moved out of this sort of time of Jesus' public ministry, and we've moved now into this um, conversation Jesus has with his disciples before his death. And that conversation, that moment begins with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And so um, here's what I want to look at as we engage this text in John 13 this morning. Three things. I want to look at what Jesus did, what we must do, and how we can do it. So that's the sermon outline this morning, what Jesus did, what we must do, and how we can do it. So let's look first of all at just the nature of what Jesus did. John chapter 13, and we'll start in uh, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. You realize, of course, that sometimes clothing reveals vocation, right? Like those of you who work in the medical field are used to wearing scrubs when you go to work. Uh, those of you who uh, work in uh, labor sort of are used to a certain kind of dress. We just had some folks painting the gallery across the hall, right? And the painters wear a certain kind of clothing. And you're not surprised when you meet a painter and he's got paint all over him because that's kind of what is required for the task he's doing, right? If you show up at a funeral, you dress a little different than when you go to work. And so we realize that sometimes the clothes you wear sort of um, imply or describe or show forth a certain kind of vocation or a certain kind of work. So John mentions here that what Jesus does is he lays aside his outer garments and he takes a towel and ties it around his waist. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's taking on the clothing of an ordinary servant. He takes the, the dress, the appearance, sort of puts himself into the, the pattern and the 
uh, what someone would look like who was a normal household servant who would do this work. So just imagine what's happening here. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the rabbi who has called these disciples to himself, the one whom they've left everything in order to follow and learn from, is now visually taking on himself the clothing of a simple servant. And so the first thing we see Jesus do is he, he takes the low position. He humbles himself, even in how he dresses, and takes on the position of a servant. He takes the low position and, and, and then he does the humble task. Uh, notice how John sort of slows down this moment for us in the narrative, right? He describes that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He ties a towel around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And it's sort of like he's describing everything that happens in this moment because he wants to slow down the action and help you encounter all the things that are going on here. And notice then he says, he poured water into a basin, verse 5, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And in verse 6, we read, he came to Simon Peter. It's like the, the narrative is so slow that you're literally watching Jesus go around the table and wash the feet of disciple after disciple after disciple. This is a moment that's slowed down even in how it's described because John wants you to see Jesus doing the humble task, not just taking on the look of a servant but going around the table and doing the humble task of washing the feet of each of his 12 disciples. Jesus takes the low position. Jesus does the humble task. And Jesus does all of this knowing what he knew. Look at verse 11. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And later on in verse 21, John shows us Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So, so imagine this. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is Jesus Christ, our Savior, taking the low position, doing the humble task, washing the feet of every one of his disciples, even the one he knew was about to betray him. I want you to think about the nature of betrayal. Many of you have experienced various kinds of betrayal from a spouse, from a family member, from someone you trusted. And what makes betrayal confusing is that we don't know what's going to happen until it happens. Like that's why we call it betrayal, right? Because we thought we could trust this person. We thought we knew this person. We thought we understood what was happening until we find out that that's not what was happening at all. Our whole experience of betrayal assumes that we don't know we're going to be betrayed. Jesus, going into this moment with his disciples, is sitting around the table with 12 men and knows that one of them is about to sell him to the authorities and send him to be crucified. Despite knowing what Jesus knows, he still bends down and washes the feet of Judas. That's amazing. It's amazing that knowing what he knew, 
he still enters into this moment. And it's interesting, by the way, that in this little section, verses 1 through 30, the section closes with Judas leaving, right? Jesus hands him the bread, says, go do what you're going to do. Judas leaves, and at the very end of verse 30, it says, and it was night. So think about all the darkness and light themes that John has used through the whole gospel, and realize what he's telling you is, when Judas walks out that door, now night is coming. This is the moment when darkness begins to take over in the narrative. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we're going to read four more chapters of Jesus conversing with his disciples, and Judas isn't in the room for all of that. Judas has left. Judas has gone on to betray. But in this first moment, when Jesus is going around the table, washing the feet of every disciple, Judas is in the room. Jesus did all of this knowing what he knew. So what did Jesus do? He took the low position. He did the humble task, and he did all of this knowing what he knew, knowing that one of these people would betray him. Notice, however, that the text now moves not just from, not just telling us what Jesus did, but it moves now to what we must do. Our Savior himself, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. To notice that ought right in the middle of that verse. That's an imperative. That's a command. Jesus is saying, as I have done to you now, you ought to do to one another. You ought to wash one another's feet. Keep in mind, by the way, that the early church did not create a sacrament of foot washing in order to obey Jesus' words here. They understood that this is symbolic, right? That when he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet, what he's saying is, you should humbly serve one another. You should sacrificially serve one another in such a way as I have just served you. This is much bigger than washing someone's feet, right? What Jesus is giving us is a picture of what it means for us to humbly serve one another. We are to do as Jesus did. We are to take the low position, to do the humble task, to humbly serve one another. He goes on in verse 15 to say, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So notice that should language again. We have an ought in verse 14, we have a should in verse 15. Jesus is saying, I have given you an example. You are now to go and do likewise. You guys remember WWJD? It's kind of a 90s youth group fad. Had some bra- you guys probably had a bracelet like this, some of y'all that have been around that long, right? The idea was, you know, the question is, what would Jesus do? And then the, whatever the answer to that is, that's what you're supposed to do. And this was kind of a big... Uh, 90s youth group fad, and then what happened was the theological neatniks got a hold of it. They were like, well, you know what? I mean, you know, the whole point is that Jesus did what you couldn't do. So wrong question, right? The point is Jesus is your substitute. He's dying in your place. He's living the life you should have lived and died in the death you should have died. So don't ask what Jesus would do. Ask what he did do for you in your place that you couldn't do. 
Yeah, that's all right and good, theologically. But John 13, 15 is still in the Bible. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you, right? Jesus is saying, hey, I'm an example. Now, go and do this with one another. I want you to think about um, how significant it is for us in the formative times in our lives that we have examples to follow, that we have people we can look to. Even as Dusty was just up here describing his own story, he said, man, I'm, I was asking, what if I hadn't had the people that I had to learn from when I was young? A few years ago, in preparation for a men's retreat, I did a, a deep dive into the literature in anthropology and sociology related to um, adolescence, because I wanted to understand what science, what social scientists are learning about sort of how boys and girls grow into adults. And if you read that literature, you know what you see across the board in every culture, in every place on earth, do you know what the most important thing is for a boy becoming a man or for a girl becoming a woman? The most important thing is role models, examples, someone to look to and say, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be. And what you see across the board is if people have good role models, whether it's parents, family members, some kind of a church or religious community, if they have people they can look to and say, okay, that's what I'm supposed to become, then generally that provides a healthy pattern and segue into adulthood. And if they look around and all the role models they have are negative role models, you know what that tends to say? It tends to imply they're not going to have a very good picture of who they're to become, and it leads to all kinds of problems in formation, and then they're growing into adulthood. We need examples. That's true in our human formation, and it's true in our spiritual formation as well. So how wonderful that Jesus doesn't just say, I'm going to go to the cross and give my life for you and forgive your sin. He also says, I'm going to give you an example. Do what I do. Walk in my way. Live like this toward one another. We need this. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus giving us an example to follow of taking the low position, doing the humble tasks to simply serve one another. One of the things I love about being part of this church is that there are so many great examples of this kind of disposition, this kind of life. I was thinking as I was praying about this text, just of the people in our church that I feel like, man, sort of model this so well. I thought of uh, Nathan Humlicek, our building steward, uh, who I, I get here on Sunday mornings before anybody else. I'm probably here at 5.45 a.m. coming to the building because I'm weird like that and I get up super early. The second person here is usually Nathan. And he's walking the grounds. This morning he's out there salting the walks, making sure there's no ice for people to slip on. He's checking the temperature in every room to make sure all the HVAC is working. He's just doing all the stuff that someone needs to do so that you can show up here and walk in safely and know that your kids are in a room that they're safely taking care of. Like all the, all the things that you take for granted. Nathan's a guy that loves just behind the scenes making sure all that stuff works. What a blessing to our church family, right? Or I thought of Kelly Greening who leads our Quamdale Kids Ministry and the disposition that she leads with is not like, hey, this is my thing, don't mess it up. The discipline she leads with is, I want to serve these children because I want them to know Christ, and I want to serve the hundreds of volunteers that help to facilitate this ministry. So her presence is just one of humble service. Just how can I help this thing thrive? 
What a blessing and what a gift, right? It's so fun to be a part of a church with exemplars like that. And there are so many others that I could name, so many of you that are an example of this kind of humble, selfless, sacrificial service. Trying to follow Jesus' example. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 17. I think this is funny when Jesus says stuff like this. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He didn't have to say that. He already said, I've given you an example. Just follow my example. What does Jesus know about us? He knows that we're really good at knowing stuff and often not as good at doing what we know. So he says, hey, you know what? It's great. Blessed are you if you, it's good that you know this. Blessed are you if you do it. Fortunate, happy, thriving, flourishing are you if you don't just know this, but if you actually do it. I'm not telling you anything new. Any of you who know anything about the life and teachings of Jesus know that Jesus was a servant leader and know that one of the things we love most about Jesus is his humility and his servanthood and the fact that he gave his life for others. You know this already. What Jesus is saying is, that's cool. So y'all should do it too. Like live this way. Do this. How would our church feel different if we were trying to outserve one another? If there's just a sense of, you know what? I'm just going to do what Jesus says. I'm going to follow his example. I just want to give myself sacrificially to serve others around me. So what Jesus did is the first thing we see. And then, and then we see what we must do. Like he says, follow my example. You also ought to wash one another's feet. So cool, that's all we need, right? Like all you needed was just a reminder that you should serve others. So we're done here. You guys are like, really? Can I go? Are we, is that cool? No, we're not, we're not done because let's acknowledge, let's acknowledge the difficulty of this. Let's acknowledge not just that Jesus is saying, follow my example. Don't just know this, do this. Let's also acknowledge there's a reason we need to hear that. And the reason is because this is actually way more difficult than it seems at face value, right? Think about how difficult it is to serve others purely and truly. How many times when I serve others and when you serve others, are you doing it for reasons that might not be entirely just out of love for them and love for God? Like, isn't it true that sometimes when we serve others, other people notice that we're serving others and they commend us and that feels kind of good? Oftentimes when we serve others, we get credit for it at school because you got to do some, you know, volunteer service hours. And that's cool because it looks good on your resume or on your college application, right? How many times when we serve others, do we sort of get some intrinsic pride at what great people we are? And so there's something in us in a twisted way that sort of takes delight in that because of what it says about us. Think about all the complicated things that go on inside of you when you try to just follow Jesus' example, all the things that rise to the surface where you go, yeah, that doesn't quite feel Christ-like in that moment. I know I'm doing this because I actually want this person to pay me back or I want them to be in my debt or I want to be able to ask them for a favor later. There are all kinds of things inside of us that make this very, very difficult. 
Think also about not just how hard it is to serve others with a pure heart, but how hard it is to serve others persistently. Like to live a life of serving others, to keep doing this for a long time. To keep sacrificially giving yourself for other people and to other people and with other people. Over the past decade, my wife and I have had four sets of close friends walk out of our lives. Like friends who had stacked hands with us to plant this church. Friends who we had served in all kinds of ways and who we wanted to serve together with, because that's part of the joy of this, right? Is that we don't just do it alone, but we get to do it with other people. So people that we had just committed our lives to serving with, just sort of left. And I'm not talking about like people that we were in a small group with. I'm talking about like when I pull up pictures of my kids' birthdays, these people are in the photo. When I pull up anniversaries, these people are at the dinner with us. Like, they're people who are like in the mix of our lives deeply. And four times, four different couples have just sort of walked out of our lives, left this church, left our family, left friendship behind. And after that happens a few times, you know what it makes me want to do? It makes me want to say, okay, well, that's the last time I sign up for that. Like, I'll keep showing up. I'll be friendly. I'm not going to be weird or mean or rude or awkward. But I'm also not giving myself away to other people in the same way that I did in those instances because that hurt. So I'm just going to sort of self-protect a little bit, keep things on the surface, not go deep with people, not really get into the lives of people as deeply as I could because you know what? kind of hurts when that goes away. So as I look at my life and I think like, what keeps me from doing what Jesus said? It's that. It's that tendency to say, yeah, I mean, I'll keep doing some kind of service. I'll keep serving others in some way that looks on the outside like serving, but it's not going to be the real thing. It's not going to be the real deep self-giving that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's acknowledge for all of us, whatever your story is, the difficulty of what Jesus is telling us to do. It's not as easy as, oh, Jesus served others, we should serve others. When we actually try to do this, we come face to face with our own sin, our own wounds, our weakness, our inadequacy, and all the reasons why when this gets difficult, we just sort of come up with reasons to not do it. So, how can we? How can we do it? How can we actually live these kinds of lives? Is there any hope for us? Can we? Or is this just like noble stuff that we're supposed to say, yep, that's why Jesus is awesome and why following Jesus just doesn't really make any sense and why he can't really do it. I want you to notice the key to understanding this passage is in verse 7, where Jesus says to Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. 
So he's washing Peter's feet, and Peter's like, oh, Lord, don't wash my feet. And, and Jesus says, hey, what I'm doing, you won't understand now, but it'll make sense later. What that tells you is that this is about something more than foot washing. Because if all Jesus is doing is washing their feet, that's very understandable. Peter understands that that's what's going on in the moment. What Jesus says is, Peter, what I'm doing right now is about something else, and later this will make sense. What is Jesus doing? He's cleansing them, don't you see? This foot washing is a symbolic cleansing. It points to a greater washing that they need. And that's the key, friends, to how we can do this. We can follow the example of Jesus. We can joyfully and gladly and selflessly continue to serve others when we accept the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what Jesus is pointing to. That's what Jesus is telling Peter, hey, later on, when the real cleansing happens, this little foot washing is going to make a lot more sense to you. Notice Jesus says in verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, there's no way to belong to Jesus unless you allow him to wash you. Jesus' death on the cross is a washing, it's a cleansing. Jesus died to cleanse you and me of all the selfish motives that drive us. All the things we know about ourselves deep down when we're serving others out of self-interested, selfish motives, Jesus died to cleanse us from all that. Remember also what Jesus says in chapter 12, we looked at it last week where he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus' work on the cross is both a work of cleansing to set us free from sin and a work of liberation to set us free from the world's way of seeing reality. Listen to this from Leslie Newbegin. He says, the foot washing is a sign of that ultimate subversion of all human power and authority which took place when Jesus was crucified. In that act, the wisdom of this world was shown to be folly and the powers of this world were disarmed. Jesus died, you see, to cleanse us and also to set us free from the world's approach to power and authority. So Jesus is not just saying, follow my example. He's also showing us how we can follow his example. How? If we let him wash us, if we let him cleanse us, if we let him invert the whole way we understand power and authority, if we enter into his kingdom and embrace his way of seeing and living. But notice, this text also shows us two hindrances to accepting the work of Jesus on the cross. Two things that for you and me and for everyone hinder our acceptance of Jesus' work on the cross. First of all, the sense that we're above it. Look at verse eight. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Peter has a sense, of, maybe it's a sense of humility of just like, Jesus, this is, this is above you. You don't need to do this. 
Maybe it's a sense that Peter doesn't need it. I don't know. We don't know all the things that are going on in Peter, but we see his response. No, Jesus, I don't need that. You're not washing my feet. The first thing that can hinder us from accepting Jesus' work on the cross is a sense that we're above it, that we don't need it, that somehow this is beneath us or below us. And notice Jesus' answer, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Hey, this is the only way to be in my kingdom. This is the only way to get in on what I have to offer is if you let me wash you. That's the prerequisite. Interestingly, this little word, share, you have no share with me, is the same Greek word that in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is used for the idea of a portion in the promised land. For years, for generations, for centuries, God was telling his people, this is your portion, this is your lot, this is what I've given to you. And we know that all of that was looking forward to our future inheritance, our ultimate inheritance in the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus says, look, unless I wash you, you don't have a portion in this. You can't get in on this. Let's not be the kind of people who say, Jesus, you're not going to wash me. Notice the second hindrance to accepting the work of Jesus on the cross is a sense that you need to add to it. Isn't it funny to see how Peter flips? Peter, in one moment, gives us both objections. First, no, Jesus, you're not washing my feet. Then Jesus says, well, Peter, if I don't, if I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. You have no share in me. And then he says, okay, well, in that case, hey, how about my hands and my head too? Give me the full bath, Jesus. And Jesus answers, verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you. Jesus is saying, hey, there's nothing you can add, Peter. You've already been cleansed. There's nothing you can add. There's no more washing you need. It's not like you need to do more after you've accepted my work to cleanse you. Once you're clean, you're clean. New begin again. Listen to this. If you imagine that you can add something to what is given in the cross, you delude yourself. To try to add to it would be comparable to supposing that one could increase the efficacy of a U-turn by turning 360 degrees instead of 180 degrees. It is enough to have made the U-turn, to have accepted the subversion. Nothing can be added to what Jesus has done on the cross. How can we follow Jesus' example? How can we live lives of humility and service? Well, by accepting the work of Jesus on the cross. By allowing him to wash us and make us clean and by allowing him to liberate us from the world's approach to power. From the ways the world around us teaches us to seek our own glory and pursue our own interests and use power in ways that works for us. Jesus sets us free from all of that and gives us a whole different way of living. Now remember, the key to this whole passage is verse 7 where Jesus says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. One of my favorite things about the Gospel of John 
is how retrospective it is and how John tells us, yeah, when that thing happened, we didn't, man, we didn't know what was going on. I don't know if any of you have gotten into The Chosen, the streaming series that sort of chronicles uh, in some way the life of Jesus or at least imagines it. Uh, we've gotten into it at our household. And in the beginning of season two, season two of The Chosen starts with this imagined scene of John sitting at his table trying to capture what he would say about Jesus. It's like he's getting ready to write this gospel and the writers of the show are imagining what was it like for John to sit down with a pen and try to write the sentence, in the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. And so there's this five-minute scene where John's just having a conversation and trying to think about, like, how do I capture who Jesus is and what Jesus did? It's an amazing scene because it just makes you step behind the text and imagine, what was this like for the disciples to think for decades about this moment when Jesus said, yeah, you don't don't get this right now, but later you'll understand. What would it be like to celebrate the five-year anniversary of this moment and to have five years to look back and go, oh man, I see what Jesus was talking about now. What would it have been like to be two or three decades down the road from this moment and to have the wisdom of looking back through the resurrection and through the cross and through the betrayal all the way to the Last Supper and to be thinking about what was Jesus saying when he said that? John the Apostle, friends, has been looking back on this moment for decades. And notice how he frames the moment for us. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's John's narrative frame. That's what he wants you to see. What does this foot washing say about the Lord Jesus Christ? Says he loved his disciples. It's a picture of his love. And notice something else. After the foot washing, Judas the betrayer leaves to do his work. And there's this scene where Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and the disciples are trying to figure out who he's talking about. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And then we meet this famous character that we talked about at the beginning of the series. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. John uses this language repeatedly in the rest of the gospel. He talks about this disciple whom Jesus loved. No one knows who he's talking about. Most commentators think this is John's way of referring to himself. This is John's self-reference in the story, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John, in understanding what's happening in this foot washing, sets it up by saying, Jesus loved And he identifies himself afterward for the first time as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what sets us free, to live lives of humble service to others. A sense that Jesus loves his own and that you are loved by him. That has the power to defeat all the selfishness in your life, all the self-interest, all the laziness, all the things that keep you from really wanting to give yourself away in love and service to others. What defeats it all 
the love of Christ. The love of Christ. So when I told you my story of having some friends walk out of my life, there have been many times over the past few years I've just sort of wanted to close myself off, keep people at arm's length, not go the extra mile to serve others. You know what defeats that impulse in me? Two things. One, remembering the example of Jesus. That he gave himself away in love and service to others, even to death. And if he did that and kept doing that, then certainly I should do that and should keep doing that. But that's the should. That's good. But the other thing is remembering that he loves me. And that no amount of betrayal or pain or heartache or difficulty or suffering or uncertainty or confusion, no amount of that can undo his love for me. And that fills me with joy to keep repenting of my own sin, to keep acknowledging my own weakness, to keep trusting in him and keep trying my best to give myself away in love and service to other people. Why? Because Christ loves me. That's the thing that John wants you to see. Jesus Christ loves his own. And it's his love for you, his deep, abiding love for you that can defeat everything that would keep you from wanting to follow his example. Friends, let's pray. And let's remember his love for us. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit's anointing of the Apostle John who penned these words. And we thank you for this scene and this reminder that unless you wash us, we have no share with you. So this morning, would you remind us that you have cleansed us in your death and resurrection, set us free from the world's way of doing things. Would you remind us of how sweet it is to be cleansed by you and to be loved by you and to be changed by you. And Father, this morning, if there are those within the sound of my voice who haven't yet come to you to experience that cleansing and to receive your love, would you let this be the day that they come to you and trust and surrender? Thank you that you loved us until the end. And that because you did, we too can follow your example. Not in our power, not in our strength, but strengthened by the grace that you have given us through your death and resurrection and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.